0: Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics Podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force, collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Linda Gojak, NCSM's president, brings us episode number four, Leading to Make a Difference. Linda currently directs the Center for Mathematics and Science Education, Teaching and Technology at John Carroll University in Ohio. On the path to leadership, we all encounter bumps and boulders. Linda shares 10 tips to help smooth those bumps to become an effective leader of mathematics education from the classroom to the boardroom. This episode was recorded at the NCSM 39th Annual Conference held March 19th through March 21st, 2007 in Atlanta, Georgia. Linda Gojack, and many of you know her as a teacher and a leader. She is currently the president of our organization, but she was a fifth grade teacher, and she also directs the Center for Mathematics and Science Education, Teaching and Technology at John Carroll University. Her topic today is Leading to Make a Difference, and I just have to tell you that at the previous session I attended, I sat next to one of our members who said, I'm going to go see Linda. Have you heard her? And I said, I'm on my way there, too. She's fantastic. Please help me make welcome our president, Linda Gojek.
1: Thank you. I don't know if I can live up to that expectation, but we'll give it a shot. Um, there are actually two parts to my presentation this morning. The first part is from a lot of the reading that I've done. I've been out of the classroom now for eight years. I worked in a lot of different roles for 28 years. That makes me pretty old. I started when I was five. Um, and I've actually found myself going from being a classroom teacher to a leadership position within my own building. Um, and how did I get into it? I had a hard time saying no, so people would come up and say, would you be willing to run for?" And I'd go, sure, and then afterwards, they'd tell me what I'd just gotten myself into. But I'm still doing it, and I love it, so it's been fun. But a lot of what I've learned about leadership, I've learned by doing, making mistakes, and picking myself up, and brushing myself off. But there are some wonderful books. And um, as soon as I left the classroom, two things happened. I had time to read, and I could go to the bathroom whenever I needed to. (laughs) So the first part is kind of serious, and the last part, I've been polling people on our board, and at dinner, and over cocktails, saying, what have you learned about leadership? So some of that comes from some friends, and I hope we'll have a little bit of fun with it. So um, one of the things I learned to do as an adult was to sail. I'd like to tell you that that's our boat, it's not. It just happens to be a picture that I took. Because when you're sailing, you can't take a picture of yourself sailing. Um, But there's a lot about sailing that's similar to leadership. So I like this quote, if a man knows not what harbor he seeks, any wind is the right wind. And I think that directs us. We need to know where we're going. So did I skip one? Nope, I'm okay. So I looked up the definition of sailing, which is the skillful art, you hope, of controlling the motion of a sailing ship or sailboat across a body of water. How many of you have ever been on a sailboat? How many of you know how to sail? The interesting thing about a sailboat is, unlike a powerboat, you gotta know what you're doing when you get on board. At least somebody on board's gotta know what they're doing. So. Um, you know, the first time, the first couple times, I owned the boat with another teacher. She happened to be a physical education teacher. The name of the boat was Teacher's Pet with the S apostrophe. And um, the first couple times we went out, bowling, what's a bowlin? A bowling isn't that one. We don't know how to tie a bowling, so I'm sitting on the bow reading the directions of how to tie a, a bowling. So there's some skill to sailing, whereas if anybody's a power boater, You know, you just put the key in and you drive it and you're off and um, hopefully you can get it back in the dock in one piece. So leadership is much like sailing. Leadership is the skill of influencing people to work enthusiastically toward goals identified as being for the common good. So with that said, I would say that lesson one is set your course. By the way, this PowerPoint is going to be up on our website next Monday. So you don't need to take notes. At the end, I'll give you the web address, and you can go in and and pull it off. So it's really important that you have your own personal mission. Just think about, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, have you set your own personal mission? Do you know what you're about and you believe in? So how and, And all of my mission, maybe it's because I spend so much time in the classroom, but everything I do, focuses on students, even as a leader. The other thing I have learned is that sixth graders are a whole lot easier to handle than adults are. So I have to keep my vision on what I want for kids. The second part is, have you identified your values? And I like these two questions. I actually learned them from a colleague at a conference and he said, this is what I asked my faculty at the beginning of the year. What do you believe about effective mathematics education? What do you believe? Have you defined what you really believe is effective? And what do you believe about the way students learn mathematics? And if you ask that question and you're working with teachers, you will sometimes find that there's a conflict between the two. It's often a good place to start when you're working with a group you're not too sure about and have them see whether or not they've defined those two things and if they are aligned. Oh, I have a clicker here and I'm not using it. Have measurable goals. So what are you going to do to reach your mission and how will you know when you're there? If you haven't done that, and I would say my first year in this position as director of a center, which had not existed, I just kind of got this job and they gave me an office and I went, this is cool, now what do I do? Um, I really didn't have any of those three. And I've now learned a lot more of what I'm about. I had it as a classroom teacher, I just didn't have it when I was going in and working with other teachers. So make sure you've found your compass. And I was just reading a book, and this has come up over and over again, so I really had to think about this. Think about someone who has greatly influenced your life. Who's your hero? Professional hero, personal hero. And what are the qualities of character that this person has? So you might want to do that, and I'll give you an example of some. Those might be some that come to mind. I think about my professional mentors and my professional heroes. And I have a lot of them. When I sat down and really thought about it, I have a lot of people that I think are my heroes who have influenced my life. Um, But they have not all of those characteristics, but many of them. And so, you kind of wonder, these people, you know they look really good. So you wonder, are they just kind of naturally born this way, or are they learned behaviors? And I think it's important for everybody in this room that's a leader to understand, to some degree we have all the characteristics, some more than others. Patience is not one of my characteristics. So if I go back to this and I think, I'm not always a good listener. I sometimes try to guess what people are gonna say because I always feel like I'm in a hurry. Um, I try to be respectful, passionate, I am big time. So think about your own characteristics and which ones do you really have that are part of you and which ones do you need to work on? So as we look at that list, whoop, um, we have to practice the ones we don't have. So when I catch myself not really listening, I stop and say, look into that person's eyes, shut your mouth, Linda, and listen to what they have to say. So you need to practice those qualities if we're going to uh, be able to have them ourselves. So lesson two is that there are two dynamics to effective leadership. One is the tasks. So what is it we want to do? The other is building relationships. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what my tasks were. I had to really work hard at building relationships because many of the teachers that would come to the workshops and the professional development that we did weren't on the same page I was. So, yeah, know, they'd go through the motions. They didn't necessarily believe where I was, so I had to think about what do I do with that naysayer in the back of the room. I'll give you an example. We were doing a workshop with a wonderful group of K-3 teachers. And we had used John Waals you know, one of the big things that they want to know is how do you help kids learn their basic facts? If I could come up with the magic cure to have all kids know their basic facts, I could retire, be a millionaire and do this for fun instead of getting paid. So we went through some of the strategies in John Waal's book. Thought a lot about John when I was doing that workshop. And one of the first ones is counting on. So one of these wonderful teachers, and I do mean wonderful teachers, they gave up six Saturdays without a stipend or anything to come to the university. Um, She says, have you heard about touch math? Now, I remember that last year after the six-week session, and I'm not opposed to touch math, but it's not the only strategy. And if all we're showing kids is touch math, we're not giving them a chance to make sense. But that's a different speech. Um, Anyway, I'm thinking to myself, how do I answer this? How do I value what she has to say, because they've had all this success with touch math, and yet help her to get to the next level? Well, I did what anybody would do. I had a co-facilitator who was a first grade teacher, and I turned around and I said, Diana, what do you think about that? Um, Diana, Diana did not know how to answer either. So we kind of laughed about it, but I couldn't jump on her. And six years ago, I would have jumped on her, and went, touch math. What do you mean just touch math? So you really have to, to take people where they are and value that and develop those relationships. So you can't just define the tasks, you have to think about your audience. So there are these two things about power and authority. And power is more of a forcefulness. You want to coerce something because you're in a position to say. I used to say to my kids, well, why do we have to why do we have to explain our work? And I said, Well, the last time I checked, I was the teacher and I get to tell you what to do. And they said but it's a free country. And I would say, not when you walk in this room. So, you know, in that position, I, I could use my power. What I prefer to use is authority, where you want people to really go along with you because of your influence, because you are convincing them that your passion is that kids ought to be making sense out of the mathematics that they do, which is my passion. So it gets through to more teachers when we talk about it from that standpoint rather than saying, well, you know, I'm the one that's running this workshop, so I evidently know more than you do. And so this idea of not power, but really thinking about how do you influence people. So lesson three was that there are different roles in leadership, and I had to know what I was going in to do. So sometimes it's just providing information. You may be working with people where you are just going in and providing information. I was working with a school district. Um, Their curriculum coordinator asked me to come in and talk to them. Now I am passionate about kids making sense out of mathematics and teaching mathematics in a way that kids can make sense out of. So this giving them the worksheets or showing them how to do it, what I call the show and tell method, you show them how, you tell them how. If they don't get it right, you show them again bigger and tell them again louder. It's just not my, understanding while I was going into this district to talk to their math team. This district um, used about four different books at every grade level, and fourth graders were using a sixth grade text, some of the advanced fourth graders. Um, That personally, in my own life, makes me very uncomfortable. In fact, we stopped all acceleration at the school. I taught at for many years until kids got to seventh grade, so we had a better better sense of where they were. I realized in going in to talk to them, my role was to provide information. And I noticed the one principal started to become very defensive. When I said, well, why do you accelerate these kids? Why do you have some fourth graders doing sixth grade and seventh grade math? And he became real defensive and I said, I'm not looking for my education. I wanna make sure you guys understand why you're doing that. So being able to ask questions, but knowing that I wasn't trying to go in to convince them to adopt my philosophy, but I wanted them to understand why they were doing what they do. The second level uh, is to assess and change attitudes. At that point, I might want to be changing some attitudes. I might want them to be. I loved the the slide that Kathy Cox put up about how they changed their curriculum and a classroom would look different. Because when I looked at it, I thought, those are the process standards. Those are the process standards. So it's talking about how do you change attitudes and convincing people, in my mind, that those process standards are just as important as the content standards. Now it gets a little tricky. So how do you start to affect behavior? How do you affect organizational change? So we're, and these are levels. So, you know, when you're just providing knowledge to people, you're at the very bottom level. When you're trying to go in and affect the whole organizational change, uh, it's pretty scary. And I would say that you have to develop some of the bottom ones before you can get to that top one. Other way around. So, lesson four is change is difficult. People feel awkward when confronted by change. So they need to know what to expect. People feel alone even if everyone else is going through the change. That sounded funny. (laughs) Um, Teaching is the world's loneliest profession. When teachers go into their classroom, for the most part, they still close the door and they're in there with 25, 30 kids. And so even if a whole building is trying to make change, the bottom line is that unless you are in a position where you're lucky enough to have coaches or mentors or teachers can go in and talk to each other and watch each other and be reflective and not become defensive about practice, but learn together, um, most teachers go in the classroom, close the door, and they are with the kids. So if you're expecting them to make change, they're not feeling what the, they may be feeling, but they're still, they still feel that they're alone as they're trying to implement that change with kids. So you wanna structure activities that create involvement, and you wanna encourage individuals to share ideas. Give opportunities for them to talk to each other. People will first think about what they have to give up. So you don't want to sell the benefits of the change initially. We were working with several districts um, in the greater Cleveland area where we were asking the elementary teachers to move to a more hands-on, inquiry-based approach to teaching mathematics. Most of them had had experience teaching in a very traditional show-and-tell environment. We didn't try to go in and sell them the benefits of inquiry what we had them do, was actually experience it. And when we actually had them experience some of this math, you know, very active, hands-on, but connected it to our state curriculum, I don't think they realized or perceived what they were giving up as to be losses. In fact, they started to say, where can we get more of these kinds of ideas? Um, And you need to listen. Um, I went in to do a demonstration lesson, at one district that I was working with, and this teacher only allowed me in her classroom because she was told she had to. So I walked in, this was a group of second graders, and her first comment to me, I let them pick the lesson they wanted me to do. Give me a topic, I'll go in and teach it. Now, I used to call those model lessons, but not knowing the kids, I didn't have any idea what was gonna happen, so I now call them demonstration lessons. So I walked into the room, oh, she kept telling me, I don't know, she gave me the topic and then she perceived to tell me about at least 10 times mentioned. I don't know why this is in the curriculum in third grade. They had had looping, so she'd had these kids in second grade. They did this last year. I don't know why we have to do it again. So I went in with my manipulatives, and I wanted to put the kids in groups of four, and they were all facing the front of the room, and she wouldn't let me move disks. But before that, when I walked in, this district had embraced a very hands-on curriculum. The kids all had their old textbooks, which were supposed to be taken away, and they were working multiplication problems. And when I, I knew I was in trouble when I walked in because she said to her kids, put away your real math books, we're gonna do the other math now. And I turned her, I was so proud of myself. Now remember, I was like two years out of the classroom myself. I turned around to her and I said very quietly, please don't say that to your students. And she said, but that's the way I feel. And I said, and you are entitled to those feelings. I can't change those feelings. I didn't say this to her, but I did. I looked at her and I said, and you are entitled to those feelings but you are not entitled to share them with your students. And it was very interesting, as the lesson unfolded, the kids had never worked together in a group. Now remember, this is the second year they have this teacher. They had never used a manipulative, and when I went through the lesson, it had to do with patterns with adding odds and evens, and doing it in a very concrete way, so they can see that when you add an even plus an even, you're gonna get an even, and why that happens. And the kids were very involved, but you could tell how awkward it was because they hadn't worked with materials before. But what was, and so they struggled with that, and they struggled with the conceptual understanding, even though she had taught it. And when the lesson was over, she came up to me, and she said, well, I don't know why they had such a hard time, because I taught it last year. And I just, you know, I decided that there was just no way to win. So I decided to change my tact, and she would come to the workshops that, they weren't forced, so she came anyway. And I think she sat in the back of the room to purposely ask questions that were tough. So I started to just say, you know, I'm really glad you asked that question because you make me think. And when I leave here, I have to go back and think about the question that you asked and giving you a decent answer. So that was a real aha, but it's really listening to people and approaching them with where they're at. Um, people will think they can only handle so much changes at once and this is really important. I think sometimes we go in and we want them to change everything we do. And there's a wonderful article in an old, and it's not that old, but it's an issue of uh, mathematics teaching in the middle school called Never Say Anything a Kid Can Say. And at the end of the article, I've seen some heads nod. We use that article with almost all the professional development we do. At the end he talks about 10% change a year. So to go in and have teachers a whole new program and expect them to just successfully implement that without giving them the support that they need and expecting that they're not gonna be able to change everything, especially elementary teachers who teach five subjects a day, and now we're asking them to totally change the way they teach math. So 10% a year is very realistic. If you have a really good bunch, and an enthusiastic bunch, you might get 20 out of them, but 10 is pretty realistic. Change is difficult because I always get the list of why we can't do it. We can't change the schedule. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. We don't have the skills. So you really have to encourage creative problem solving. And sometimes you have to come up with a solution yourself. So where are we gonna find more time? How are we gonna find more time? Brainstorm together and then take it to the principal and say, "This this is what we've come up with. It's amazing to me how Band, and I have, nothing, I have nothing against band, music, art. My sister was an art teacher for 27 years. Um, I have nothing against those being in the curriculum, but oftentimes, at least at the elementary school level, they are what controls the, the, the way that the schedule is written. So um, I want to go back and think about, is that appropriate or not? People are at different levels of readiness, and I actually talked about this. Some people are risk takers. you got the ones that are gung-ho going, this is really cool, I can't wait to go back and try it with my kids. And others are much less secure about it. And you really need to acknowledge feelings um, as to where teachers are in their own personal development. And finally, this is one of the things that I learned, I didn't realize this, but when the pressure is taken off, people revert to their old habits. Unless they've really bought in. And I have found that when you don't have administrative support, those teachers who don't want to change don't change. So if you get a chance to look at that brochure, that was why we chose to start with administrators on what research has to say about professional development, too. And our first one in your bag is administrators because we really felt that they, one of the things that Iris Weiss's group found was when the administrators were on board, change would happen much more quickly. Oh, and the last one is really important. If I can get the last one back. Focus on your goals. Recognize and celebrate successes. You've really got, when things are happening, people, everybody is happy when they're acknowledged for their work, but when things are happening, even if they're baby steps, make sure that those teachers are recognized and acknowledged, and they love chocolate. Chocolate is always good. If you don't bring it, they'll bring their own, is what I've learned. Okay, lesson five. The key to leadership is to accomplish the task while building relationships. In order to develop relationships, you must know where the people that you are working with are. You have the enthusiastic beginners and I kind of think they're like the puppy dogs that you first bring home and they're licking you and hugging you and they'll do anything you ask them to do once they figure it out. They have a high level of commitment, the new teacher or the teacher who's coming in, who might have a high level of commitment, but a low level of confidence. And they have inexperience, so that's one level. And you know who they are, they're gonna do everything. God bless them, I hope they do. Then you have the disillusioned learner. They have some experience and competence, but they have a reduced level of commitment and enthusiasm due to some failure. I tried this, it didn't work. So part of it is because It's not easy to make the change. And so they think they're gonna go in and do it and it doesn't work. And so then they'll come back and say, didn't work. I mean, I get teachers who come in and say, I tried this, it didn't work. Sometime over a glass of wine, if you wanna know, I'll tell you about the first time I tried real problem solving with my fifth graders. At the same time, this was many years ago, groups of foreign cooperative learning. I just remember, this is a long time ago. My classroom, I was still in a self-contained classroom. My classroom was right next to the teacher's lounge. And when the, when the lesson ended, I just went into the teacher's lounge and I put my feet up and I said, they said that was going to work and it was the worst lesson I ever had in my life. But a week later, I tried again. It was a little better. And a week later, I tried again and it was a little better. And these kids were solving some pretty significant problems. And by March, I still remember that a group of kids came up to me and said, "Miss Gojek, how come you saved all the easy problems for the end of the year? So it, it isn't going to happen overnight. It takes change. It takes... It takes making some mistakes and and that whole idea of being reflective about what you do. So then we have capable but cautious. And I think you can probably identify somebody who's got each one of these levels. They have a moderate to high level of competence. They may have lost some of their enthusiasm. I don't know if you want to call that starting to burn out. Um, But they're a little bit cautious about applying the change on their own. They need to have that support network. And then you have your peak performers. They're really self-reliant. They're the teachers that just say, this is good for kids. I can do this. And they go in, jump in with both feet, and they're very successful. They're highly competent teachers, and they are committed to change. So you have to know which level you're working with. So lesson six then becomes practice flexibility. You can be directive, telling people what to do, when to do it, where to do it, and how to do it. It's not a whole lot different than teaching fifth grade. And there are some people that, you know, I used to think, now I'm working with adults, I don't need to do this. With some adults you do. And it's where you have to start with them. There's also supportive leadership. Listening, encouraging, praising progress, facilitating interactions, and involving people in decision making. And I would say that some of the time you're balancing between the two. So sometimes you need to be very directive, and people want you to be directive. Other times, have you ever been someplace where you just say, tell me what to do, and I'll do it? Sometimes with what we do with teachers, that's what we need to do. But we also need to make sure that we're being supportive at the same time. So we're getting closer to the fun stuff now, but I want you to, this was really enlightening for me. Um, When you're directing, you're providing specific directions about their roles. You're tracking performance in order to provide frequent feedback. And you really want to use this with the enthusiastic beginners. Because you know what, they're at the point where they want to listen and they want to learn. They need high direction and they need a lot of support. Then you have the coaching model, which you're explaining why you solicit suggestions You praise progress that is approximately correct, and you continue to direct the class accomplishment. And I would add another step to that, that you model. A big part of coaching is also modeling. And that's best used with the disillusioned learners, the people that need that extra support, need high direction and high support, but it's more, let's talk about it, but I'm gonna help you with the decision. Again, I see a lot of you writing, and I, I... You can, because I'm one of those people who has to sit and write, but if I'm going too fast, this will all be up on the website.
0: Um,
1: Supporting. That's where you really facilitate interaction with others. And this was something that was hard for me. When am I facilitating and when am I being more directive? You want to listen to people and draw them out and ask questions. You want to encourage and support people, and you don't have to provide quite so much direction. So they start to decide where they want to go and where they need to be, but you're there to help by your questioning, have them consider the best direction for them. And that's best used with the capable but, high, uh, but cautious performers. So you're giving them high support because they know what to do, but they don't need quite as much direction. So I kind of think about that as let's talk about this, get everything out of the table, and then you guys decide where you want to go. And the last one is delegating. So that's where you are facilitating the interaction you're listening to people and drawing them out. You're encouraging and supporting, but this time you provide very little direction. And that's what you use with your pig performers. At least in my experience working with elementary and middle school teachers, um, I run into a lot of teachers who really want to make change, but they don't. And they're very enthusiastic. And they are outstanding teachers. They just don't always have all the information to be able to determine what it is they need to do. Lesson seven, you can't do it all by yourself. So you need to find your partners. I have some interesting partners. I have people at other universities that I work with. Ah, I had a laugh when Ruth said doctor. As soon as you get a job at a university, it's the easiest PhD I ever got in my life. I'm, I don't have my doctor. But I, I have learned to depend on people. Our center sits in the mathematics department, which was very interesting because when they, when they did that, I wasn't quite sure how the mathematics department was going to welcome us. Um, they welcomed, Most of them welcomed us with open arms and the rest decided they didn't really care what we were doing anyway, so that was fine. But I have found my um, colleagues in that math department that are willing to help, that I feel comfortable with going, you know, this has come up in one of our workshops and I'm not sure how to answer the question. Could you look at it and tell me mathematically why this is correct? Or help to explain it to me? So they've been wonderful. Finding teachers. finding what I call masterful teachers. To also, there's something a teacher brings in when you're working with other teachers that gives that credibility. Because even though I've only been out of the classroom for six years, they see me now as a person at the university. So I usually co-facilitate with a sixth grade teacher who can say, I did this with my kids and it worked. Um, follow through on agreements. Determine the right leadership for the right developmental level. So find some people to work with. Um, I miss I miss that part of of working with with teachers that I was working with when I taught. Now I'm really by myself. Building relationships? God, this one is hard. You gotta learn how to trust people. I forgot the little dongle to my computer. I'm a Macintosh person, so you have to have this little thing to hook it into the projection device. I'm waiting for one of those Mac commercials where the PC guy turns around and says, well, at least I don't have to have a dongle. Um, And my roommate said, I'll run back to the hotel and get it and it's getting closer and closer, and I'm thinking, oh God, I hope she finds me. She was here in plenty of time. I really had to trust that she said she would do it, and she was gonna do it. So you have to trust people, and you have to let go, and you have to know that if it doesn't work, that's okay, you'll pick up the pieces, and you'll make it work. You really have to be respectful of people, and part of that is listening, and I think that's something that I know personally I need to to work on, because I kinda listen, and then I guess that I think I know what they're saying, and I might interrupt, and that comes across as not being respectful, and I really don't mean it to. Um, but you, have to, you really have to be respectful of other people, even when you want to wring their neck. Um, you need to focus on the needs of others. So Terry Belcher, our executive director, is wonderful about that. Every once in a while, she'll just check in with me and say, how's everything going? Is, is everything OK? Do you need anything? So it's focusing and supporting one another. So lesson eight is Murphy's Law lives on. So if anything, now we're getting into what I consider, these are my experiential lessons. Anything that can go wrong, probably will. So if you were downstairs yesterday and came over to help us pack bags, you know what went wrong. At three o'clock yesterday afternoon, they had lost the bags, these beautiful peach bags that you have. We had everything lined up and ready to stuff, and we had no bags, and they had no idea where they were. They had gone through all NCTM stuff. I mean, we are panicked. First of all, I have to tell you how lucky we were to have the people that just said, they just kind of sat down and started talking. It was like old home week. Um, That's all right. we got no place to go. We'll wait until they find them. Uh, We had to start problem solving. There was a car show going on downstairs. One of the gals ran down, finagled. I don't know how she did this. God bless her. But she finagled a pass into the car show found the manager and asked him for 2,000 plastic bags from the car show. So you almost wound up with plastic bags from the car show. In the meantime, I said to Tim Canold, your wife works for McDougall to tell, can you get on the phone and see if she can find Helen's phone number at home? Because it's Sunday afternoon, Helen's not in the office. Helen's the person that ships the bags. So Susan called somebody else who called somebody else who called somebody else, and. Before you knew it, we had Ed Finnegan from The Decorator talking to Susan, and by golly, they went back to the warehouse and found those bags. But we could've sat there and said, now what are we doing? It was just so much fun to watch people say, okay, we got a problem, how are we gonna solve it? So we try to teach kids to problem solve, but we don't always do it ourselves. And I have oftentimes stopped myself and said, okay, I got a problem, now let's just sit down and think about this for a while. Um, when you're on the NCSM board, if you lose or don't wear your name tag, you get fined. So I have been very careful for the last three years not to lose my name tag, but I'm in the process of moving. So I've been packing things. My house was supposed to be done in December, it's still not done. So a lot of things are in boxes because I thought I was going to be moving in January. And I knew exactly where my badge was and so I got everything laid out for this meeting and I went to the drawer and I opened the drawer and I looked in, and there was no badge. Not only was there no badge for this meeting, The other badges from other positions I have are all kind of in that drawer. No badges. And I'm thinking, I've packed those badges and I don't know where they are. So I spent four hours. I was up till three o'clock in the morning because I just thought, if I walk into that meeting without my badge, they are going to give they are just going to let me have it. And I finally went to bed. I said, I know I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to be worried about that badge. And I stopped and I said, Okay, what can you do? So I thought when I get to Atlanta, I'm gonna find a trophy store before anybody else gets here and get somebody else's badge. I don't care what it costs me, I'm gonna have a badge made. It turned out I didn't have to do that because somebody, I emailed somebody and said, bring your badge and she's the person that gets them made. She said, oh, I'll just go to the store and get one made for you tomorrow. <sighs> I still owe her big time. But you know, the idea was what could I do? I had a problem and it, was, it may seem trivial to you, but it was serious to me. So I just stopped and said, what can I do? What can I honestly do about this? and I was ready to go into gear and have another badge made. So Murphy's Law definitely lives on, and problem solving is the the answer to that one. You have to develop a thick skin. No matter what you do, no matter how respectful you try to be, there are always going to be people that you have to work with that, quite, quite frankly, you consider them difficult, and the truth of the matter is they probably consider you difficult, that you just have that tension, just as much as there are people that you meet and just automatically click and you work together beautifully. Um, The key to this is swallow hard and be gracious. If you have to work with that person, and maybe it's, I don't know, I won't say that. Um, Just, you have to develop thick skin and you have to be gracious. And lesson 10 comes from the geese. I don't know, are you familiar with lessons from the geese? If you are not familiar with lessons from the geese, I actually was gonna end my presentation with that one and maybe I can still do that. Um, Just go on, just Google. I don't have an encyclopedia anymore, I just Google. Google lessons from the geese. It's this wonderful thing that's been floating around about leadership. I don't know when the first time I saw it was. I did find out from one of the websites that it was actually written by a science teacher after he had watched geese. So when you see the whole thing, and if we have some time, I'll show it to you. Um, Geese information honk from behind to encourage those in front to keep up their speed. So when you hear these geese honking, that's what's happening. The lesson is we need to make sure that our honking from behind is encouraging. <laughs> so when you think about leadership and the lessons that are learned, the journey's often rough whether you're on the water or bumpy if you're on the road. If you don't change your direction, you will wind up exactly where you are headed. I think, that's a, I think that's a Yogi Berra one. But think about that. If you don't change your direction, you will wind up exactly where you are headed. As we continue on the journey of leadership, in order to become an effective learner, we may have to adjust our course by even a few degrees. If you've gone sailing and you've adjusted your course by a few degrees or the wind is blowing just a little bit the wrong way, you're not going to get to where you wanted to be. However, a few degrees may not make a big difference on a short journey, but for the long journey of life, it, it will put you in a completely different place. So it doesn't mean you give up what you believe in, but you have to adjust to think about the people that you're leading and who you're working with. This is one of my favorite quotes. A leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily wanna go, but ought to be. This is my next favorite quote. The person who says it can't be done should not interrupt the person doing it. I actually have that under my signature in my email. And this is one that we use with our state leadership group. To to lead people, walk beside them. As for the best leaders, the people do not notice their existence. The next best, the people honor and praise. The next best, people fear, and the next, people hate. When the best leader's work is done, people say, we did it ourselves. Remember, the definition of insanity is continuing to do what you've always done and hoping for different results. And that is the website where you can get the PowerPoint, the jcu.edu cmset, um, and it will be up on Monday. There's one up there now, but this one's a little bit different. So you can go into that website, and as long as we have a few moments, I'm going to go back, for those of you who would like to see it with the whole lessons from the geese um, presentation, because we are a little early. I can't believe it, I I usually run out of time. Has everybody got the website? www.jcu.edu and then slash CMSETT. And I will finish with the lessons from the geese, since several of you said you've never seen it. Those of us that have been around for a while have seen it. It kind of disappeared after a while. Here we go. Okay, what can we learn about leadership from geese? As each bird flaps its wing, it creates uplift for the following bird. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock at 71% greater flying range than if the birds flew alone. Lesson, people who share a common direction and a sense of community can get where they are going quicker and easier because they are traveling on the thrust of one another. What can we learn about leadership from geese? Whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and added resistance of trying to fly alone and quickly gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front. Lesson, if we have as much sense as as a goose, we will stay in formation with those who are headed in the direction that we want to go, and we will be willing to accept their help as well as give it to others. When the lead goose gets tired, it rotates back into formation, and another goose flies at the point position. Lesson, it pays to take turns doing the hard tasks and sharing leadership. With people as well as geese, we are interdependent on each other. The geese in formation honk from behind to encourage those in front to keep up their speed. We need to make sure that our honking from behind is encouraging. When a goose gets sick or wounded or is shot down, two geese drop out of formation and follow it down to help protect it. They stay with it until it is able to fly again or dies. Then they launch out on their own with another formation or catch up with their flock. Lesson, if we have as much sense as geese, we too will stand by each other in difficult times, as well as when we are strong. Leaders learn publicly, create professional community, enable others to collaborate and lead, encourage continuous growth in all. I thank you, let your leadership journey begin today. Thank you very
0: much. Be sure to tune in to Episode 5 for 5 practical, research-based instructional strategies that every supervisor needs to be able to advocate for and model by Steve Leinwand.